Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing a very important topic. I know this has come up on so many occasions, and, uh, you know, more knowledge is better. And we're going to be talking about pain management for people who have kidney disease. Uh, I'm very excited because we have Dr. Godnich. She's a nephrologist. She lives in Galveston and practices in Texas, and she's got more spunk than I have. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, It's very interesting. You know, pain management has evolved over the years, and I feel like we've taken a giant step back uh, lately for people who suffer from pain. But um, I thought it would be worthwhile to go through the different pain medications, um, starting with over-the-counter pain meds. So can you tell the difference between, like, you know, Tylenol, ibuprofen, Aleve, I guess those are the the, um, brand names for it. Sure. So over-the-counter pain medications are what most of us used uh, in the past, and then better or stronger prescription meds came around. So several of these over-the-counter medications are still available. Aspirin, which is often not mentioned in any realm, is still available over-the-counter, and it was the original uh, pain medication that was used well in the middle of the 1800s. We also have the two major classes at this point in time, which is acetaminophen and the other group, which is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So those are our two main uh, powerhouses at this time that are over-the-counter. So acetaminophen has been around for a long time. It actually works in a couple of different ways, but we really don't know its mechanism of action clearly. Uh, the mechanism of action that is printed is that it uh, activates a pathway that is driven by a neurotransmitter called serotonin, and it inhibits pain uh, down this pathway. Uh, and that's different from its fever or anti-fever effect, which actually affects the brain directly in the hypothalamus to inhibit that fever center. So that's how acetaminophen okay. works. The other class are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Most patients don't know the class per se by that name. Uh, NSAIDs, N-S-A-I-D-S, is what most people use for an abbreviation, and an acceptable abbreviation, but most people really know Motrin, Ibuprofen as their common over-the-counter names. And that is a, a Motrin is a brand name, Ibuprofen is the generic name, and that is different than Naproxen, which is a brand name um, uh, for the generic drug, Naproxen. But Naproxen and Motrin fall into the same class of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or NSAIDs, and they work by inhibiting a very particular enzyme called cyclooxygenase, And that prevents the formation of important mediators to the inflammatory process called prostaglandins or prostacyclines or thromboxanes. Those are all three mediators to other activities that go on. With with NSAIDs, um, I have been 
programmed to never take them and um, because I have a kidney transplant. And it's sometimes hard to get the general public to understand that. So um, I've actually been given some NSAIDs in a hospital when I, you know, clearly said that I shouldn't have them. And, and what I do is I just say my kidney's allergic to them. And, and they get allergies. <laughs> um, the, I don't the, know. the fact that you say that is very, very, very helpful. I do tell patients uh, to do exactly that to make sure that they don't get certain medications and to, for example, not to get contrast in the hospital when they have a certain level of kidney dysfunction. Just say you're allergic to it and people will then listen to you and <laughs> not it. have it on your list. Exactly. So that is a good idea. <laughs> well, and I know it was crazy. One time I had, you know, I had both my knees replaced and it was, um, anyways, I was given some NSAIDs pain medicine and the pain doctor was, you know, monitoring me and he came in, my potassium went up because, you know, I was kind of on the end of my third kidney, so I didn't have a lot of room for air. And uh, he came into the room, and I was just, like, ready to yell at him, you know, <laughs> saying, why did you do this? I have to drink K-Exalate, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I'm so sorry. I'm a kidney patient, too. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> that like, is, I mean, it just threw me funny. off guard. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, he, he's a patient, too, and he, he didn't remember this. So, But what you're describing is a very common or important scenario. Certain pain medications work better on certain types of pain. And non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the ibuprofen and naproxen type of drugs work great on musculoskeletal bone type pain. And it is very difficult to almost impossible to get any other over-the-counter or prescription drug to have the same effect as this class of medications do for orthopedic procedures. Yep. So it is really <laughs> difficult for both the physician and the patient, the patient who's having the pain and the physician to try to figure out and wade through what's going to cause the least amount of problems or damage to the patient and provide the most painful relief. And that's part of our crisis over the last several years is that many patients died over pain medicines being given out willy-nilly for things that, well, in the case that they were not necessarily the best medication choice for right. the medical problem or the surgical problem. Well, the, um, the over-the-counter meds, are there any ones that you would tell your patients who are on dialysis not to take? Well, you know, the interesting part about medications in general is that all medications have side effects. All of them do. It is a misconception to think that uh, medication is perfect. And, you know, during this COVID time, right, we're all looking for the perfect vaccine. So currently, as you know, vaccines are on hold because there were a side effect in one person or two people out of a million. It's very unrealistic to think that medications are not going to have side effects. Right. So people with certain illnesses should know what they are at risk for. So, in, for example, with acetaminophen, that is generally well tolerated by a large population of patients. It doesn't always provide as much pain relief as the non-steroidal group of medications, but it, it works great, except if you have liver disease. 
You right. could have if you could have liver disease from bad habits like excessive alcohol intake, or you can have bona fide liver disease from primary liver abnormalities. So if you take acetaminophen, you are at risk for having complications from that medication because it is heavily metabolized in the liver. Well, and you had mentioned aspirin. Um, you know, many of us are prescribed baby aspirin, or but you know that just thins your blood. You have to be really careful because I mean that is the one reason it absolutely has gone out of favor because when it binds to the platelets, it irreversibly changes the platelet until that platelet dies, so that you cannot clot your blood adequately. That oh, is wow. absolutely correct. The other effect of aspirin is that. When it breaks down, you chew it a little bit, the baby aspirin, or uh, swallow it whole. The aspirin itself causes direct crater effect in the stomach. So people Mm -hmm. tend to have gotten GI bleeding, plus their blood was thin. So they had pretty good GI bleeds from taking aspirin casually. If you chew up the aspirin, each little particle will cause a separate crater if it contacts the uh, gastric mucosa yep. so, or the gastric stomach lining. So that was an important effect it's... of aspirin. And so it went out of favor. The important thing to remember about aspirin, though, in the world of, um, of kidney is it doesn't cause the same type of kidney problems, kidney failures that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do. So because of how it works in inhibiting the arms of the enzyme it inhibits, it balances itself out so it doesn't give kidney failure or provide kidney failure in the same way that the other medications do. So people tolerate it better from a kidney perspective. The GI and the blood thinning portion of it, though, make it very difficult and dangerous to use. So that's the problem with it. About 11 years ago, prior to, you know, getting my fourth kidney transplant, um, I was seeing another doctor and they prescribed a medication for me. And I probably should have asked, I don't know what, what went on, but I had six holes in my stomach from six pills and I had a GI bleed and I ended up um, uh, at emergency with... Um, you know, my hemoglobin was 5.5 and I was actively bleeding. And it's the first time I really remember thinking, I have never been so tired in my life. And I didn't really understand. I think it's important to, it's very confusing when you have blood in your stools because it, you know, I'm like, oh, it looks like it's more than it is. It was actually straight blood. <laughs> And, and I, you know, now I'm more cautious of it because you need to really be familiar with that. And, you know, there's a lot of GI bleeds that can happen, just a little bit of blood in your stool, and you have to, you have to look at it. <laughs> well, and, and as a aware. transplant patient, I'm sure you have asked and you are very clear about anything that you are using because that is the confounding factor is that over-the-counter medications will interact with your usual medications, and then it's really difficult to know what is causing which problem, and that makes it more difficult to do the right thing. But pain medicine has become more difficult to dole out 
because of what we've learned over the last five years, which is if you casually give out uh, even prescription medications, bad things can happen. Well, and it's, it's, I've been a little frustrated with some of the changes because I've been in the hospital. I mean, I normally just take Tylenol and it does a little bit, but maybe it just helps me more thinking that I had something because I have a lot of arthritis. But when I'm in the hospital with severe pain, it's been very frustrating because it's like, well, let's give them Tylenol first. And I'm like, I know that's going to fail on me. Why are, why are you doing that to me? Um, why are you making me suffer? And, um, and then, you know, what works for me when I have severe pain, um, I'll mention to the hospitalist, which uh, that's a whole other story that I could go into. <laughs> but they, um, I'm like, you know, Dilaudid works for me. That's what works for me when I'm in this pain. And they're like, well, how do you know so much about narcotics? Like, like I'm some kind of drug addict. I'm like, well, be a patient for 50 years and you'll know exactly. I know exactly what anesthesia medicine works on me and how it feels and how I feel afterwards. I'm like an expert on the different types. So it's been very frustrating because I think a lot of people are having more pain because we're on this pendulum swing on the other side. You are absolutely correct about that. About six or seven years ago, in-hospital um, satisfaction scores were linked to Medicare reimbursement. And one of the most important issues in patient satisfaction was pain control. So what happened to a significant degree is that doctors gave out lots of pain medications and patients generally with knee surgeries or hip surgeries then became hooked on narcotic pain medications. And then it became a real outpatient problem that has led to the recent backlash where we can't even give out narcotics now without a multi-step um, um, prescription monitoring program and very specific documentation that says why the patient needs this medication in the quantities they need it. And so, yes, you are watching the, the pendulum swing in ridiculous directions from one extreme to the other. That is correct. Well, and, you know, it's when I'm in the hospital and I have pain, the only thing that makes me better is managing my pain and getting some sleep. Those are the two most important things that I have when I'm in the hospital. And sadly, there's been some conflict with, I mean, hospitalists are not my favorite um, uh, because of the fact that, you know, they, they often don't know you. They don't know you, period. And they don't they know, will you. Not know you. And I, I had one hospitalist come in and tell me after I was yelling and screaming and, you know, I get a little upset when I don't get what I want and um, or just feel like I'm being heard. And they came in and they're like, well, we didn't know you were so accomplished. And I'm like, why should that matter? Why should that matter that I'm, a, you know, an advocate, I run an organization, I, people know me, I mean, I'm not a drug addict, I, I mean, I know patients who have gotten hooked. Well, you hit on the important point of chronic care. It is impossible, here's one of my euphemisms, it is impossible to do acute care in a chronic care patient. And right. many, many times when chronic Kidney patients, dialysis patients, transplant patients are thrust into a hospital situation. They are put into the acute care situation, and the boxes are being checked in the in the box appropriate way. And it may or may not have anything to do with the patient's uh, 
uh, recent or subacute or even chronic condition. And that's a problem because kidney issues are all chronic issues. Right. And we don't have enough chronic care people who actually go into the hospital and say, yeah, yeah, that's my patient. I'll take care of them. Well, and, you know, kidney disease causes other problems, um, you know, bone and mineral issues, arthritis, different aspects, which is pain. But I did find one secret that um, really helped me at a hospital stay where I was having conflict with the hospitalist. Um, and the nurse told me this. And they're like, well, let's just get you a pain consult. And I didn't know there were pain doctors running around. That's like a new doctor for me. And I got the pain consult. He came in and he gave me something to treat my my, my pain. And um, so uh, are you having those in, in your um, hospital? Yes. Oh, we have pain consultants. And like any type of physician, there are um, physicians that are, are uh, cognizant of certain issues. And, and my issue would be the chronic kidney disease patients. And then other physicians that are not so aware. Because the problem with pain medications, especially upper-grade narcotic pain medications, is that it is more difficult to clear many of these medications from the body when the renal function is not normal. So there should be adjustments to pain medications, and there should be a careful titration and close follow-up. So if a patient is being monitored and there is a genuine plan to start low, go slow, get to a point where the pain can be controlled, that's great. So if the pain doctor works in that regard, it's a wonderful adjunct to what we have um, in terms of the general hospitalist or the general internist giving out pain medicine. The other thing that the pain doctors do and do very nicely is they can provide local injections. Mm -hmm. Many of our pain doctors in this area are anesthesiologists, so they will inject joints, inject spines. Uh, they will put um, uh, implantable devices that give chronic low doses of our narcotics if, if it's narcotic pain relief that the patient needs, and that works very, very well as, as well. So it's nice to have that adjunct care. Yes. The other thing that they do very, very well is the paperwork that's involved with higher-end pain medication because that is a almost a full-time job. I only have about a dozen of my own pain, medica uh, pain patients to refill medications and to check medications, and it's a full-time job to uh, and a full evaluation every time I want to refill their medications just to stay out of trouble with the Texas Medical Board, right. which is a whole nother song and dance that is um, um, tied in with the pain medication prescription. Well, and luckily, um, you know, I'd gotten the pain medicine doctor when I was actually in the hospital, and they were able to treat me for a couple of days, and then I didn't need the pain medicine anymore. And it's it was so frustrating because I had so much pain in the hospital, I wasn't getting any sleep, which for me, as a, a patient for 50 years, if I don't get sleep, nothing else works for me. Um, well, and I you hit on, on a, a very important point. You hit on a very important point. A good night's sleep will help mitigate the pain. Exactly. So patients who are not sleeping well with pain 
are going to have more pain because they're not sleeping well. Exactly. That is a very important point. It's it's just, it's, and I just, you know, was so grateful when this doctor came because, oh, I totally understand, you know, and, and I was dealing with an ankle replacement and all kinds of things going on, and it was quite, um, obviously, I had a lot of pain, and Tylenol wasn't cutting it. Um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other alternatives to medication that you may suggest to reducing or relieving some pain. Are you speaking to things like physical activity? Yeah, just in general, like, you know, massages. I mean, I used to get massages once a month before we had the COVID outbreak, um, and that really did help me a lot. Um, It is very important to keep an open mind about alternative modalities because in the real world, we have a limited armamentarium for pain control. So not needing pain medication is a great way to start. One of my uh, most more interesting clinic issues is patients who come in with knee pain. And because they have knee pain, they do less exercise and then they feel weaker and then uh, they feel weaker and then their knees hurt more. And uh, they don't generally make the connection between strengthening the quadriceps above the knee to the reason why they're having more pain in their knee. So I am a firm believer in keeping the muscles as strong as possible to help support the joints that they cross. So that is a very uh, important thing to do um, in, in arthritis, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, where a lot of patients have that at the same time that they have their chronic kidney disease. It is, it is counterintuitive, as I tell patients, but it is as important to at least walk or ride one's bicycle every day to maintain tone and muscle strength. Massages are a great idea if patients can have access to that either through a chiropractor or through a therapeutic massage place that they go to. I am a very strong advocate of that because that starts going into the mind-body issue. And, oh, my God, sometimes we just like someone laying hands (laughs) on a very sore part of who we are. So there's uh, an emotional overlay to the physical relief that a a massage can do for a, a muscle that may be in spasm. I am not opposed to acupuncture as well for the same reason. It is a, you know, thousand year old plus tradition in the uh, Orient and patients who get relief with um, uh, acupuncture feel better. And isn't that what we really want is that the patients feel better. They're carrying the weight of chronic issues with them and we just want patients to feel better. And when they're happier, believe me, our lives are happier as physicians. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. And, you know, um, I got this great gym membership where, um, anyways, I I won't even tell you how great it was, but it was like for $89 a month. Well, actually, I will tell you. I hope it comes back. But $89 a month, I could get three massages, three facials a month, or a um, and membership to the gym. And what was really interesting, I usually like upgrade and did like a a facial and a massage. And I'm, I'm a believer that being forced because I didn't want to lose it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Um, it, it really helped with my circulation. Um, I see a lot of my friends who, you know, had more ankle and feet issues, but I think massaging and, you know, getting the blood going um, really helped. 
uh, over the years. So I know there's a lot of things that, you know, we can do for pain and hopefully, you know, people can find a solution because, you know, we're getting more into having CBD oil. Um, I don't know. Does Texas have, are, are you guys allowed to use CBD? Because that's the big thing We are in absolutely California. allowed to use CBD. We're not allowed to use THC. And my personal experience with CBD is very, very good. I have been on the hunt to make sure that it doesn't have any um, side effects that might be bad for my patients, like more rapid progression to kidney failure. And so I kind of waited for about a year to see how the CBD was going to pan out. But um, I like using it myself, uh, and it is a great and it's a great alternative as an anti-inflammatory and it and it's not illegal it has the it does not have the THC which is the um the marijuana component in it and it is a very good anti-inflammatory if it works for patients great it tends to be pricey um but um it does work so and they also had that over the counter pain it used to be a prescription, but it's called Volatrans. Is that the name Voltaren. of it? Voltaren is a topical, non-steroidal, anti-inflammatory drug. I've recently been studying for uh, internal medicine boards, and the American Board of Internal Medicine review uh, topics strongly recommend that for, recommends that for topical relief of uh, osteoarthritic type of pain or uh, joint types of pain, it stays local. It does not cause the systemic side effects. Patients more often complain, and when it was, and it is pricey. And when it was prescription, it was pricey. It was never um, the uh, the first choice or the lowest tier. It was always top dollar. The patients most often complain that it doesn't work well enough. But if it does work, the diclofenac cream is really nicely effective. We, you know, there's still over the counter old world stuff like the Asper cream. Lidocaine patches uh, are over the counter now, as well as a lidocaine cream. So then some of the other non medicated products are more camphor and methanol, and that helps to. Increase blood flow to areas, which sometimes helps people feel better. And you know what's the best pain reliever I've found is icing. <laughs> you know, just taking some ice and putting it on my knee, <laughs> and it gives me relief. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's because it inhibits the inflammatory uh, components from migrating to that site and perpetuating themselves. So, absolutely. Keep it easy. I know. I know. We all can afford ice, pretty much. Um, And there's so many incredible ice packs out now. When I had my uh, replacement surgery, I did some research. And, you know, there's some great ones you put in the freezer, and they have little Velcro, and it's easy to snap them around your knee for 10 minutes and uh, can really help with that um, inflammatory. um, Because inflammation is what causes pain, right? <laughs> correct. That is correct. <laughs> well, it is the body signal that something isn't quite right. And so it's a warning signal. That is correct. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, some great information um, about pain management. I, we're in this new reality of uh You know, we have to go the extra mile now to find what works for us because we don't want to be overprescribed. And you mentioned something that I would like everyone to remember. You are your own best medical advocate. 
Right. So the more engaged that the patient is, the better care the patient will get. Well, and, you know, that's what was, I go back to the hospitalist. I, I have a thing with them right now. I'm like, I got to go to, <laughs> I, I think I need to go to a I think everybody can tell. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, because I've had some hospitalizations that where, you know, it was just disastrous. And, um, you know, once they started to understand, like, who I was, not like I'm different than anybody else, but, you know, they kind of just chalked me up to just being, oh, here's another person. Like, no, I, I actually know what I'm talking about. And it was very frustrating that I had to prove myself like that. And, and you know, bring in my magazines and bring in people to tell them, like, I'm not somebody who's just, uh, uh, but it shouldn't matter who you are. That That's what's so crazy. And, and to get them to actually listen to me. So, um, I can only imagine how my peers feel because uh, I feel like I'm a pretty good communicator when I'm in the hospital and I have hit some walls and I, my heart just aches and not only for myself, but for for people who aren't as effective at getting what they need <laughs> right. and, and then they just suffer and it's it's kidney disease is hard enough. <laughs> you don't you don't need to needlessly suffer and especially not be listened to by the people who are caring for you. That that's the biggest thing. Um, it's okay with me if somebody listens to me, says I understand, gives me an explanation, and says I want to go this route, and then get my buy-in for it. Just don't leave the room and then go do what you want and never talk to me about it. That just throws me over the edge. Um, so I probably should, well, I can't go take a value. I think I'm going to go have a drink. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we didn't talk about alcohol. Um, I'm not somebody who drinks very much, but, um, you know, people also have to be aware that alcohol is a pain reliever as well. And, um, that can be abused. There is a, um, uh, you know, I'm an older person, but, you know, I asked my friends, I said, I'm a little surprised. Uh, my husband and I are not drinking individuals, uh, and so we don't have liquor out at our house. I said, but my children do. My grown children have bars at their house. And, you know, and uh, I said, uh, it, it seems like I go to young people's house and drinking is fairly common. And this is how we do get in trouble with some of the pain medicines that especially prescription pain medicines with a combination of pain medicines and alcohol. So that can be very problematic when it's, when it's, you know, I'm just one or two drinks because many of these pain medicines are metabolized in the liver. Acetaminophen is metabolized in the liver. And so alcohol directly competes with some of the enzymes that acetaminophen is competing with. And so it is, it, uh, it is something someone, it, it, people should be aware of that, that alcohol may have its place and, you know, it, it, to numb a few emotional or physical parts of us, but it uh, needs to be used cautiously and judiciously when other pain medicines are involved. Sounds like some wonderful information. Um, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Godnich. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's so wonderful and refreshing to have such committed nephrologists to this community. 
um, you're you're just a, a wonderful example that all nephrologists should you know try to. Well, my be like my you. personal philosophy in this community that I live in is that a healthy community is a productive community. If we have more patients on dialysis, they are not very productive people. It's harder, as you know, to be productive uh, with dialysis, which is a full-time um, occupation, either mentally or physically. And so I like to have a healthy population because then people are out and about and they're working and contributing to our society and our culture in positive ways. So it's been a lifelong commitment to keep people off of dialysis and keep people healthy and not accidentally show up as a kidney failure patient because, oops, I've been taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for 20 years and I didn't know, you know, that kind of thing. So this is a wonderful thing that you do. Thank you so much. Uh, knowledge is power. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Laurie. You have a good day. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.